I think creativity is like a phenotype for consciousness. It's something that's the expression of it that other people see. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 364. Today is Sunday the 15th of March 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. Thanks for taking the time out of your so busy day to listen to this episode. And please rate us if you like the show and don't forget to subscribe to catch all of the next episodes. On to this week's interview, which is with Dr. Sharma Raman. Sharma is an accomplished musician, vocalist, songwriter, with a PhD in philosophy, neuroscience, and complexity. She has founded several initiatives, including Jugular Productions, Deep Science Ventures, and NeuroCreate, of which she is CEO. In this conversation with Sharma, we discuss her pluridisciplinarian approach, the concept and process of creativity viewed through neuroscience, how to get into the flow state of mind, what her startup NeuroCreate is setting out to achieve, and the role of AI and tech within creativity. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Now for the interview. So Dr. Sharma Raman, great to have you on the show. I got a chance to listen to you at a, an event called the Creative Futures, and we're looking at creativity, technology, and the future of such. You were brilliant on the panel, and so I wanted to get you on the show. So in a few words, how about describing who you are, Dr. Sharma? I'm really glad you said who I was rather than what I was. Um, so, um, hmm. I can tell you my, my nationality um, in the sense that I have Bengali parents from Bangladesh. I was born in United Arab Emirates and I have lived in England for the last 20 years. So now that's over. Um, uh, the things I'm interested in are science, art, technology, sociology, philosophy, and how all these things kind of link to each other and come together. Um, well, so you have a, a YouTube channel that features your singing, your artistry, your musician. You've also got a PhD in neuroscience. That's a wicked combination. How on earth do you manage both of those? Um, well, I kind of, uh, I resented the, the the British education system, to put it lightly, when I got to A-level, where they wanted me to choose to either be an artist or a scientist. Um, so obviously, I rebelliously carried on the artistry and um, went and did, you know, the expected thing uh, formally, which was a more scientific route. Um, but then I really got to a crossroads um, when I finished my bachelor's and my master's and, you know, I just like, I really want to try this music thing. I really want to try this, you know, acting thing. I just, I feel like it's now bursting out and I can't ignore it any longer type mm. thing. So you're, you're, you're in your white suit and there you are <laughs> wishing, you're tapping along to music, Capital Radio. Do you know what? That's really interesting. I was in the basement. You're, you're not far off. I was in the basement uh, during my bachelor's thesis where I was looking at fruit flies and I was uh, sorting them out based on like the color of their eyes and how curly their wings were. And all I was listening as to, as one does, because I'd somehow genetically modified them as well. Don't shoot me. Anyway, um, and I was listening to Mr. Scruff <laughs> and getting into a rhythm doing that. So you're not a million miles away. And um, I used to put on a lot of music events 
moments when I was at uni. I was a radio DJ. I was a head of marketing of that radio um, station as well. It was at, at the time, if you guys know UCL, it was Rare FM. It was um, Europe's largest internet radio station. And I think, you know, at some point I was like, I think I want to be the person on the stage and not the person just maybe enabling it. I still do a lot of that, but I... I am that person who's composing and it's always coming out of me. So I thought, okay, just let's try it. But then, you know, I also didn't want to give up the science. So I thought, hmm, what if I created a, a, you know, a whole new subject area, which at the time it was, and now it's really trendy. Um, let's look at the science of creativity. And this is where I thought, I'm just going to marry the two things together and I don't have to choose. Like my whole life has been about <laughs> not having to choose, you know. Yeah, that's that a, it's sense. wonderful. I mean, absolutely is. My observation is many people in business putting on that quote-unquote white lab coat have a side hustle. And, and, they, and they're like, oh, I wish I could play music because, you know, if I could make money playing music or if I could do the thing I'm really passionate about, I just have to work. But it seems like for you, you've managed to put them together and they're both juicy and, well, I'm both, I say, multiply interesting to you. Yeah, I, I I mean, I do think that each thing feeds into the other. So like, you know, if I didn't have firsthand practice based experience of creative thinking or creative activities or, you know, have that mm, ability to compose or perform, you know, if I, if I didn't have that sort of, you know, firsthand experience to it, I don't think I would have been able to even create the experiments within the scientific inquiry of them so that I could actually even, you know, um, collect data that was even ma- meaningful, right? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of scientific um, experiments that are done in isolation uh, where you get one person um, doing something really quite artificial and strange um, right. and just what we call not ecologically valid, put it that way. <laughs> so I had to find ways of allowing people to feel really comfortable to be creative so that I could actually explore their brain activity whilst they're being creative rather being like, right, you have 30 seconds, go be creative, monkey. Like, you know, I couldn't do that because I'm like, that would be a travesty to me as a performer. Right. So why would I do that to somebody else, yeah. you know? So, yeah, the long-winded way of saying, I think these two things um, or these multiple things have always fed into each other for me. So. so I'm guessing that you paid quite a lot of attention to the operation that was done on a woman who had a a big uh, cancer in her head, and she was a violinist, and That's she really was playing. Scary. Yeah, I, I literally read about it yesterday. <laughs> That's really funny. Yeah, I like synchronicities. Yeah. yeah. That, that, I thought that was uh, fascinating. Um, so you have founded, if I understand correctly, NeuroCreate, and I'd love to know about what this enterprise is, is trying to achieve, set out to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, to do that, I'm going to take you back one step again uh, to the PhD that you mentioned. So my PhD was an interdisciplinary PhD um, because we were looking at the neuroscience of creative thinking, uh, different types of creativity, the different stages and processes and toolkits that you might need um, to be creative, different sort of innovation frameworks. Um, this all might sound like gobbledygook to people you know they'd be like you know creativity is just creativity how can you break it down but you can and the reason I actually went into it was because I was interested in consciousness as you do Mm -hmm. and everybody went that's career death you don't do that now Mm -hmm. go and philosophize about that at the end how you make money on that exactly so then I was like okay but really what am I interested in Um, I think I'm interested in how you make something from nothing 
say that's what it magically or mystically looks like when you think about creativity. But then actually, this is something you can examine as a process. So I, I've mentioned this before. I think creativity is like a phenotype for yeah. consciousness. It's yeah. something that's the expression of it that other people see, you know. So bearing that in mind, why the neuroscience of it? There have been a lot of mental models that have been, you know, um, proposed for creative thinking. Lots of philosophical thought models, you know, lots of people who've done computational, you know, creative algorithms where they've gone, I think this is how the human works. And let's see if the output of the machine actually matches the output of the human, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and then people have done a lot of like interview based stuff, you know, to, to do use cases and be like, right. okay, I think, broadly speaking, this is the process that say Einstein might have gone through mm -hmm. but actually look quite similar to say maybe what you know a fine artist or a musician might have gone through you know um, so my job was like okay this is all brilliant but what's the one ring that binds it all mm. and could that be the physiology is there a physiological marker you know that actually underpins any of these things or is it forever going to be a qualitative subjective space so you say you're trying to find a unifying concept to creativity well, more kind of to see if there's any biomarkers to these different states of mind that happen within creative thinking or, you know, how we use our mind differently. So it's what you call cognition, right? Mm -hmm. Is there creative cognition, right? Does creative cognition have some sort of signature pattern mm -hmm. when it's in these different spaces in, in our minds? So a couple of things. First of all, I, I'm thinking of, um, as opposed to cognitive, there's sort of affective or emotional mm. uh, creativity. And the second thing I was wondering about, when you described a creativity as some, nothing from something, oh, sorry, something from nothing, yeah. um, you can also imagine creativity uh, at, the, at the outer limb of something that's already create, created. Absolutely. And so an yeah. addition to something. And, and so there are many ways you can apply creativity. It doesn't have to be on a white sheet. Absolutely. So so that's exactly, I mean, the reason I said that rather provocatively is like that could be what it appears like, right? Yeah. Suddenly you have something and then, you know, a few minutes ago you didn't. And, you know, sometimes even creatives, quote unquote, you know, go, I don't know how I did that. It just happened, you know. It's this crazy synthesis and it's magic, you know. And then you were like, nah, nah, <laughs> it came from some other thing, right? Y yeah. You're standing on the shoulders of giants and um, at, or your own shoulders, if you might consider it, maybe like 20 years ago, and suddenly the idea came up again. So why don't we break it down into concepts and, you know, these being the sort of the building blocks of thought and how they kind of come together. And so what we're doing with NeuroCreate, Actually, okay, wait, again, let's go back. I, um, during my PhD, found um, a pattern um, within the brain activity um, of, of the musicians that I was looking at that corresponded to a mental state called flow. And uh, flow is a mental state um, that was coined by a positive psychologist uh, called Sikhsen Mihai. And he was trying to look for um, happiness, I suppose, and what made people happy, which is a really, really um, huge uh, endeavor and super culturally biased and individual and you know but what he did find were like a collection of traits that seem to go together and one of those things is being super engaged in what you're doing um, transformation of time the ability for you to change um, your strategy very flexibly so not get fixated the exact opposite of that obviously is stress 
and that's when you can only see things in and one fear. way or fear that's called functional fixedness mm -hmm. so flow is the opposite of that so what i mean by that is like if i showed you like a bottle um and i got you to try and think about other uses of a bottle apart from a bottle can you just kind of think about it as a completely different structure if you're stressed, probably not. Um, you'll be like, no, it's a bottle, goddammit. <laughs> and babies are, are able to do that so much easier sometimes than we are. Yeah, so maybe the baby will try and roll on it like a log right. or something like yeah. that, right? So that's mental flexibility that comes with, mm. with flow, but also the ability to see the bigger picture as well as the details. So say, you know, you're a musician, you need to know what you're playing, what your band members are playing, and how the audience is like receiving it if you're, you know, doing your thing well, right? Same thing maybe with a footballer or same thing if you're like, I don't know, doing some public speaking, you know? You have to kind of know what you're about to say, whether whatever you just did had an effect and, you know. Are you present? Are you present? So it's actually a temporal thing as well. You're absolutely right. So past, present, future have to be, you know, together. And the coolest thing is people say that they feel really happy. <laughs> so that's where it comes back to that positive psychology thing. Now, the interesting thing about flow is that it can happen uh, in any type of work that you do, as long as you're passionate about that work and you have some skills to be able to do that. Why? Because it happens basically when it's at a sweet spot of your ability to meet a challenge. So if it's mm -hmm. too easy, you get bored. If it's too hard, you just get frustrated. So if you can do this in any work you it means you can also do it in a creative work mm -hmm. so assuming you're good at at least you have, have some base level of right. uh, you know fundamental skills right mm -hmm. so so we're like okay so what is neurocreate doing we're basically creating digital collaborators which are enabled by ai to help train you in creative thinking to help spark creative ideas and thought in order to take you through the different stages of creativity to lead you up to the creative flow state so essentially, we want to help you get to flow. All right. So you, I, I'm sure you did it to your own brain, <laughs> Shama, um, while you were playing music. I'm sure that must have been really fun. I would love to do that. Side note. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 what are, how do you measure the state of flow of somebody? So, you know, you imagine you're trying to help me be more creative in my, and you, you're going to attach nodes to my head. I did when it was, you know, in a lab and it was like a swimming cap with 64 electrodes. Um, so which is like great because I'm able to get a lot of data at super nice resolution, um, you know, because you have 64 electrodes on the top of your head. So, yeah, exactly. And but obviously not when this is like, you know, a product that anybody wants to use. Right. It has to be nice and simple. So at the moment we have wearables called Fitbits, for example, sure. um, that's for your heart rate mostly. But, you know, you'd be surprised to know there are also wearables for your brain. Um, and there are companies out there who are creating it to help you sleep better, um, to help you meditate, you know. Um, so those are hardware companies. And what we want to do is create the software that can be like agnostic to any one of these sort of wearables. So the idea would be that, you know, we, we currently have deep learning models that can detect from, you know, this sort of live streaming of your brain activity, whether you're in that flow state or not, um, which what we then want to do is link that back up to our creative thinking tool to actually really personalize how we can help you you know, get to your, get to your next cool idea. Um, so you want to augment that whole process. You want to enhance it. You want to be playful with it. Um, you know, people say it can be quite frustrating when you're trying to come up with the coolest idea, but, you know, why does it have to be? Um, so we're trying to help visualize your thinking. It's a thinking tool, basically. So in, in, in essence, whatever this hardware is, how many senses do you need to really 
at least get some kind of understanding of flow. Because, I mean, if you have 64 sensors, I'm going to imagine it's a little bit more precise. If I have five, can I get there? That's what we're working on at the moment. And um, so far, we've got really high accuracy rates. So, you know, there's some uh, wearables out there which has only four sensors or some which have 14. Depends on, you know, how cyber you want to look. <laughs> and, yeah. and is there, a, what is the correlation between flow and heartbeat? Uh, and I, or I, I should say heart now. rate. I mean, I don't know. There's heart rate. rate variability, is, heart rate variability, I would right. say. That's um, what I have to look at, that sort of the, the yeah. interspace. Yeah. So this is what we're looking at at the moment, actually, because um, it's not a simple. Uh, yeah, exactly. So heart rate is just basically the number of times something like your heart beats exactly in a minute. The heart rate variability is the space between the beats. Exactly. And, you know, um, an intuitive thing might be, oh, they should be really even, right? Because if they're not, you're obviously going into some sort of panic mode or whatever, right? Actually, counterintuitively, we have a very variable um, inter-heartbeat interval because it allows us to be on our toes and respond to, you know, I don't know, the lion around the corner. <laughs> so I just, I've, I've just purchased the Apple Watch 5. Right with the EEG, and I'm wondering to ECG. what... ECG. sorry. Oh, yeah, EEG is on the head. Yeah. Um, sorry. Uh, and what extent that is accurate to your reading, because it's a, just a, a, you know, a consumer product, and yeah. are there better ones out there? And what's your reading? Um, there are other ECG, you know, wearables as well. So the difference, I guess, with the ECG and heart rate variability is one of um, more data, basically. So with the Apple Watch, if I'm correct, you also have to basically... Hold, hold it, it yeah, so. and on yeah, on the crown, right? Yeah, that sort of exactly. thing. So, so, so the reason I was mentioning um, the difference, say, between heartbeat and the counterintuitiveness of heart rate variability, you might go, oh, do you know what? Um, the faster or you know the, the the shorter amount of time between the intervals, that might just mean that I'm more excited and I'm more stressed, or the other way around would mean I'm more relaxed, mm -hmm. sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, it's not too much information to go off of, and it's kind of the same problem when you're just like, oh, you know what? Um, anything that makes you excitable, but what does excitable mean? It could mean fear. It could mean angry. It could mean happy, right? Whereas with the brain, you have a lot more nuances that mm -hmm. you can see because the data is more complex. So if you look at the EEG as the ground truth, you can then start correlating it with these other right. things. So Using from AI, exactly. So from there, yes, we're now trying to see that link with heart rate variability. Um, reason being, like you know, what we want to do is you know not necessarily rely on all these wearables. We actually want our platform to start looking at behaviors mm -hmm. um, of how you interact with some you know something that's digital. Because, um, you know, maybe you don't want to wear a heart rate variability or ECG Apple Watch. And sure. maybe you don't want to wear a wearable brain sensing headband. Right, so, I, of course, I, uh, being an athlete, uh, there have been times when I feel so in the flow. And, like, every ball I'm hitting in tennis looks huge. And, and I see it on the strings. And it, there's a, that flow element or when I'm dancing to the dead. How does one procure uh, the flow, Do state of flow? No, it's the Grateful Dead. Oh, damn it. Okay. <laughs> sorry, sorry. We were talking about that before. <laughs> what was your question again? So how do you create the state of flow? I mean, other than, you know, taking psychedelics or something, perhaps, mm. what are the ways that in business people can, as they're going into, let's say, a brainstorming session or a strategic session, and you want to get to that flow, what are the kinds of things you can do to establish that? I mean, if... if 
do you have to be passionate? Do you have to be engaged beforehand? Or is that what you need to do as a precondition? I mean, what do you have to, how do you get into that state of flow in business? Um, so, like I was saying, you can get into flow in anything that you're passionate and skilled at. So there's probably um, as many ways of getting into flow as there are professions in the world. But then, so if you're in a business, let's yeah. say you, you're, you're going to approach a business team where a group of 15 people around the table, we love our business, you know, more or less passionate about it. How does one get a group into a state of flow? I think it depends on the activity. So um, we're just, you know, choosing one path. So our path is why don't we do, um, instead of, say, playing tennis, because not everybody, say, is a tennis player or, say, I'm a musician. Nobody necessarily, you know, has those motor skills um, necessarily in, in the business, say. Um, we kind of went, okay, let's look at the fact that most people are, you know, what we call in the knowledge sector, they're thought workers, right? Everybody's essentially, like you said, they're strategizing, they're coming up with new ideas. So most people brainstorm, or another way of calling it apparently these days is, is thought storming, <laughs> right? Um, most people will do something called conceptualizing, right? They would just kind of go, right, well, here's an idea. I want to invert it. I want to look at it from different angles. I want to explore it. I Be out of the box. Yeah, I want to look at it. Diff, you know, thinking at it laterally, say, um, I want to be able to do the creative exploration, the research of it. Um, I want to also then, you know, let my mind cogitate and, you know, find the patterns that it needs to find in order to get to the eureka moment. Then I want to implement that eureka moment. And that's when flow comes in. So do you see what I mean by there's many stages right. to creativity? Mm -hmm. And sure. there's also many different tools that you could use within each of those stages. Mm -hmm. And so what we're doing is we're digitizing mm -hmm. this um, these stages in a framework that's really flexible that you can use in whichever order that you want. It doesn't have to be in, you know, you know, I must do exploration before I do analysis, right? It could be in whatever order you want. But it's also digitizing a lot of these tools. So, for example, um, uh, there's a design thinking tool, which actually is from the business world, uh, Edward de Bono's Six Hats, for example. Mm -hmm. So we're utilizing that. So we're like, okay, here's a concept. I'm in a business of making bottles. I don't know why I'm interested in bottles today. But anyway, uh, you know, um, so why don't we look at bottles from more than just the, the normal angle that I look at it at? Mm -hmm. So the reason that we're using AI is that we've created these really big semantic knowledge graphs that um, have been taken from things like culture, lifestyle, and trends on one hand. Um, for innovation, it's been trained on 35 million different sources of things to do with architecture, mm -hmm. design, tech, science, engineering. We've also got experience in games design because then it starts, um, you know, basically bringing in associations from the greater um, yeah. uh, pool of your industry rather than just your team. Mm -hmm. So what it helps is it brings in, you know, wider than that room. It helps with diversity of thought. It helps against groupthink, which apparently is a big deal, right? Because, sure. you know, if it's, it's your company. You Especially see, if the boss is in the room. Well, exactly. If it's your company, you've probably been looking at bottles for like God knows how long, and there's only one way that you look at bottles by now, right? And instead of rolling on them. Exactly. Instead of rolling on them. Exactly that. So what we're talking about is, what we're, is mental flexibility. That was one of our first ways that we're trying to get you into that flow state by using these design thinking tools. So what the AI allows is that it's constantly interacting with you. So it's really interactive, and I think that's something that can ch keep challenging you. And it is, we deliberately chose things to challenge you um, in order to keep you on your toes. Well, I, 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 I want to push back one second and say, well, first of all, 
in order for, if I put in the word bottle, uh, something like rocket comes up. <laughs> so uh, it's quite distant, you know, like a creative thought. Mm. I'm guessing that tagging has to be in a, an extraordinarily important way toward to get the bottle to, to rocket. Um, or how does that work? No, at this point, um, we're, we're more looking at creating um, corpuses. So corpus means a whole body um, that the training is done on. So a body of digital sources. Uh, we're using natural language processing. So um, we're creating, like I was saying, um, like pools. So if one pool is about culture, lifestyle, and trends, um, probably bottle will not come up a rocket. But say if one pool is about innovation, and I've sat there and I've gone... You know, there's engineering and physics in here. Maybe it will come up with mm-hmm. rocket. Mm-hmm. So just to give you that example. And big word for me is chaos. Mm-hmm. And a one I, I tend to somehow in Minter's mind link creativity with chaos because otherwise out of the box seems like we're just on giant shoulders. Mm. This notion of, of introducing chaos and the ability for a machine, perhaps quantically, mm. able to generate a chaotically different, therefore mm. pushing the boundaries of mm. what our connections are doing mm. in our brain. Yeah. And I'm wondering how that goes. I think there's a uh, scale. So there's actually, um, I forgot what it was called, but there was a scale of um, um, creative acceptability <laughs> mm-hmm. um, where mm. it, it's, it's almost Gaussian in the sense that if you go a little bit out of the box, most people go, yeah, that's cool. If you go quite a bit out of the box, they might go, oh, that's pretty like revolutionary. If you go super out of the box, they're like, that's crazy. Not doing it. Not going to accept right. it. Right. So it well, there's that group think as well that really cuts down on that. Sort of yeah. Thing. But also like, you know, you think about, you know, all those like artists who are only like recognized posthumously. Right. Yeah. They're way too crazy at the time. Right. So it, it kind of depends what sort of creative Context. crazy you want to go. Right. So we're, we're kind of allowing a lot of those sort of uh, nuances. So the first sort of suggestions we might give you are like just like semantic or meaningful or you know cultural or innovational you know associations from the wider world of 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 that you know industry but then we can bring in some lateral thinking which is like actually now we're really broadening out the concept space now we're really going further afield and then we've also got a randomizer (laughs) so that's the element of like okay you know what yeah chaos we're not there yet, I'm guessing, because chaos is a hard thing to actually create mm-hmm. or random, total randomness. Uh, yeah. They say that's the domain of quantum computing. I'm guessing people who are listening to this will be thinking about artificial intelligence and creativity. Mm-hmm. So what is Shama's opinion about the ability for AI mm-hmm. to be creative? Okay, one sec. Mm-hmm. Some fresh water <laughs> from visual. I've obviously been looking at this fresh water bottle. Now you know where my references are coming from. What is my... um, So I I often give like a talk on this, um, which is, yeah. Where do we put the word creative next to AI? Do we say creative AI? Do we say AI-assisted creativity? (laughs) Uh, Do we say, um, I don't know... um, automated AI for decision-making. Okay, the creativity wasn't in that word, you know, sort of thing. But it's like, you know, at what stage in the process of creativity are you using AI? So I think that's important to to think about Um, because, yeah, you know, you can have AI that can literally automate millions of um, website layouts, for example, Um, or millions of... One of them might be the creative solution, but all of them won't necessarily be creative. 
Well, those are, I think, just different. It's just the ability of it um, to automatedly, you know, play around with different layouts. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to you to kind of go, oh, I think I want this one. That's just, I think, something that's a decision-making process, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, similarly, like, you know, you might be, if you, in graphic design, whatever, you might just be like, you know, should it be blue? Should it be red? Uh, should it be on the top right corner? Should it be, you know? All these sorts of things, which might have taken a long, long, long time if you did it, you know, individually yourself. Mm -hmm. This is where AI would really expedite that. And then you just move on to the more interesting stuff, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and then there's actual creative AI where they're, you know, I'm sure you've heard about this ad nauseum, like GANs, for example, right? Uh, Google um, Deep Dream. I saw the tweet that you did. It's pretty cool. Um, spooky. Yeah, really spooky. <laughs> I'll add that to the show notes. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where people are like, okay, so it's generating something from nothing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, well, it's not from nothing, is it? It's, yeah. just, it's been fed it millions and millions of, you know, yeah, exactly, for photos of birds and animals and whatever it is. And then it's trying to synthesize something, mm -hmm. which could be uh, a bit of a mirror into our own creative process, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a bit more. Um, or, you know, um, AI that's creating new styles of painting, for example. You know, uh, which some people find really like bland and they would just, I don't know, have prints of it and put it up on their, you know, their their living room walls or something. Mm -hmm. Or other people would be like, actually, that's quite interesting. It's a different thing, you know. Well, so one has a tendency to say beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. Can we say the same thing about creativity and, and how uh, does the do these markers appear? I mean, if I'm if I my brain has none of these markers, what, what right do I have to say that is creative? Mm. In what sense, sorry? Well, if I see something and says, well, that's not that, that orange handle on the store is not creative. Yeah. And, and, and you look at my, you scan 64 points and I have zero markers on my brain. Right. So you would tend to say, well, he's not creative, so he's not allowed to give a judgment. Right. So, I mean, I could imagine that because the eye of the beholder. So if the eye of the beholder is not mm -hmm. creative, what mm -hmm. right do I have to judge creativity? Because we're in a business mode and we're trying to be more creative. We're trying to generate a more creative solution some people are more prone to it than others. And then the way that they connect dots, for example, and, and relate one idea to another. Mm, I think you have to break down your question a bit more. All right. So if I see something creative, we say I, the creativity is the beholder. Mm -hmm. I think that's creative. I don't think that's creative. Mm -hmm. How can you judge the, the ability of, of creativity in the brain? Is there a way for us to understand a brain's ability to judge creativity, put it that way? Okay, so now you're talking about the judger rather than the creator. That's correct. Right. Okay, cool. Um, so, like, I suppose there's a lot of um, store to be put on expertise. So, mm -hmm. for example, if you said the door in orange, um, it could be, like, other designers, for example, or architects or, you know, people in the in the craft of that thing uh, where you might want to sort of look at their judgment on something. Um, you might get a little bit broader so it's not just architects and designers. It could be, I don't know. Well, if I, as soon as I told you that was David Hockney's mm -hmm. door handle, then, yeah. of course, you're going to say, well, I know who he is, and therefore it must be amazingly interesting. And then that will right. precondition you. So, because I, I mean, he's a photographer, so that's a little bit wider well, than... Painter. And painter, painter sorry. And, um, sorry, the visual yeah. uh, artist um, versus, say, somebody who designs door handles. Right. So well, that's, that's broader again. So it's kind of interesting, but sort of in the same space. Well, so. What I was getting at was if, I, if I'm an intellectual person, but I don't have creativity, can I participate in the creative mode? Because in a business, the way it works is mm -hmm. if the highest paid person in the room, the CEO, 
is not a creative person, but it's just all about the number, get it in. And you're like, I got this new idea, it looks like that. And then the guy says, you know, does I don't like it. And I'll actually, you, you have no right to say that except the fact that you're the highest paid person yeah. in the room. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I have nothing more to add to that. <laughs> it's uh, a thought. It's a thought. No, I mean, um, so, okay. The way that... Um, if you're asking specifically what I did in my actual PhD, um, you could be the seventh person to actually read it. Um, so I could send you that. Um, we, um, it's a very philosophical question, like what is creativity, right? So then we thought, you know, one way could be um, to have a tripartite way of looking at it, right? So one thing would be a self-assessment. So did I myself think that what I created was creative? Mm-hmm. Um, one way would be an objective assessment. And an objective assessment um, would be judges, right? Now, that wouldn't be just one judge because that's not really valid. Um, in psychology, say there should be a minimum of three, mm-hmm. right? We had five, right? And um, it was in music, and we were looking at jazz and classical, so we had to have a mixture of jazz and classical. Yeah, because if, you, if it's already been done before, then mm-hmm. surely that's not creative. And in order to know that, mm-hmm. you have to have been there. Yeah. And so, for example, um, nowadays, people are not used to uh, improvising on classical music, which is quite interesting, I found out, because it's a pedagogical divide. Um, But back in the day of Mozart, it was quite common. Mm. So that's quite interesting, because Mozart actually used to build that into his symphonies. Like like in the the film, Amadeus says, would you like, how many, you have too many notes? Would you like me to take out these ones? And he improvised this brilliant piece in the film. Exactly. Um, And so we did find that there was a bias amongst the judges to be able to even try and judge classical improvisation. And obviously, the jazz people like the jazz things better, and the classical people like the classical things better. So we did have to correct for those biases to normalize them, right? So there are things you can do um, to to look at that. Now, if I then went and... um, uh, so those are two things. The other thing was actually, do I see a consistent brain pattern when either one of these, um, you know, th- uh, groups. groups, sorry, are are saying that something is creative, mm-hmm. and also it's not binary. We didn't just say it's creative or it's not creative. We gave them a scale mm-hmm. between one to five, mm-hmm. right? And so it's not completely continuous, but at least it's mm-hmm. a bit more graded. Now, if there was agreement in either two or three out of three then we're on to something, mm-hmm. right? And so what, we, what I found actually was the self-assessment wasn't very good, but the objective assessment was, and it did actually correspond to a consistent brain pattern every time. Wow. So you're, you're actually looking at the brain, seeing what's happened at the moment when they observe something and say, that's really creative. That's a five out of, out mm-hmm. of five. Mm-hmm. And then you're trying to correlate that. And then if, if three of them are having this, three or more having the same thing, then you're talking about, then you're augmenting real creativity. Well, I mean, so for example, um, we'd get, say, the average of the judges, right? And, and then we'd have your, you know, the person's self-assessment, and then we'd have the brain activity. So for example, if I had found that the brain activity correlated to a self-assessment, okay, that's interesting. Mm. So maybe it's a subjective state of mind, right? Mm. If I then found that actually the, the brain activity corresponded to just whatever the judge's collective you know, decision was, you're like, oh, wait, that's kind of interesting interesting because that's an objective thing and whether you know it or not your brain has uh, it's, it's geared into or shifted into a, a modus operandus that's allowing you to to perform at this level mm-hmm. right and then if you found that all three sort of things matched up you're probably in some sort of nirvana where everybody is super, super self-aware and <laughs> always knows that you know what they did was creative or was crap mm-hmm. essentially well, is there not a possibility though that as the group gets synchronized 
they might be doing it over a period of time, they start getting aware of the signals that they're having amongst each other. And there's a sort of, could group think then reestablish itself within that as if the group is the same group all the time? Well, actually, so again, two questions, right? If you're talking about our my, my PhD experiment, um, they were um, all randomized. Nobody was in the oh. same room as each other. Mm-hmm. So there's no possibility of that. Mm-hmm. And um, the the way that the performances were done were also in randomized order. And mm-hmm. it's precisely to, to um, uh, combat this basically mm-hmm. it's what they call familiarization almost right mm-hmm. so you don't want things in the same order and you don't want people in the same room mm-hmm. doing that sort of thing now if you're talking about the situation again we're talking about the brainstorming and mm-hmm. we're talking about the business mm-hmm. and stuff like that yeah that's the problem so if you have the same group of people always trying to brainstorm about the same thing mm-hmm. then I'm, I don't necessarily see where you're going to find the new thing mm-hmm. in that so I mm-hmm. think um, you know when some you know people get a bit scared of what AI could mean for creative processes or for anything like that it's not that everything that humans are doing are amazing right so so actually the ai doesn't have to be like the human and the ai isn't about replacing the human what if the ai can just bring in like you know an offbeat sparker or stimulus to to actually get you out of that group thing augmenting creativity totally and that's the that's the design that we're coming at it from so yeah so i wanted to just spend one last moment on shama on uh something you mentioned in another podcast which really got my got my goat uh, which is um that when people listen to music their heartbeats will tend to uh, synchronize And he was suggesting that that would be a, a route to empathy. So I would love to, for you to describe that because you know that's something I'm interested in. Um, so before having NeuroCreate during my PhD and also kind of now as well, um, I have a art science creative production agency called Jugular Productions. And why Jugular is a vein that joins the heart and the head. So what we were trying to do is like essentially link up really heady, intellectual, academic stuff that never necessarily leaves the lab, but it's super interesting uh, to matters of the heart. What does that mean? Visceral lived experience. And why, why would people even give a damn about this sort of stuff, right? So we tried to do it through performance, workshops, talks, uh, embodied experiences. And um, there was a uh, piece of research that actually said that those who sing together synchronize and so it's actually more active than listening to music so um jury was a little bit out as to why that happened it could be because they're singing in a choir together for the you know they're taking the breath at the same time mm-hmm. whatever it is they're they're sort of heartbeat synchronized when they sing there's another piece of research that showed that actually synchronizing biorhythms was the basis of group empathy and yet another piece of research that showed that actually music was one of the well, is the first technology we ever created, and specifically rhythms. So it was uh, actually a format of getting people on the same page. Yeah, so you mentioned biorhythms and rhythms. Are they the same, and how? Do, what's the correlation or link between those two? Uh, you can entrain your biorhythms um, from external rhythms. So what does that mean? Um, we have a heartbeat. That's the most... Um, you know, obvious biorhythm that we have. Obviously, you have heart. You know, the the brain. That's very very complex rhythms that are happening there. Um, you might have you know the rate of breathing that you have. Maybe it's the blood that's pumping. There's all sorts of rhythms um, in your body. There's also tiny minuscule molecular ones. Like there's all sorts of things. It's a huge system, very complex, all interlinks, right? Um, and curiously, and circadian rhythm too. There is a circadian rhythm, and you did mention that. Actually, we'll come back to that. Um, you said business people. We'll come back to that in a second. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
Yeah, so 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 something like music, which has this sort of, you know, it might have some pounding rhythm, if it's not classical, say, uh, you know, that, after a while, you will actually see that showing up as an entrainment, um, you know, whether it's in your heart or whether it's in certain sort of rhythms in your brain as well. And there's other startups that are working on that as well. Mm. And, and so what we did in that experiment, it was a social experiment where we didn't know what the outcome was going to be, but we thought it would be really fun to link these two bits of research together mm-hmm. because what I wanted was a big love uh, experience at the end of our event so that everybody would go, yeah, yeah, we love, do you want to come back? I so saying, I just imagine this in a business context. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big loving, basically. So, yeah, well, I mean, the whole thing was like, all right, so we basically, we um, took the pulse of one of the members of the audience and we set that as the tempo for the music that then um, ensued and then we got people to actually sing to that music and in some of the later versions of this we got people to stand up and actually move to the music and that was actually the most strongest sort of you know correlation well then after a period of time we then stopped and then we used um, you know uh, our phones uh, because they have something called a pulse oximeter most of them at the back of it Mm -hmm. where you put your finger on it you can actually see what your BPM is for Mm -hmm. your heart Mm -hmm. And we found that every single person had basically either 127 or 128 BPM, mm-hmm. uh, wow. like really synchronized for like a group of 40 people, right? And then um, the uh, different ages. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, and then you know the composer that we were like working with towards the end because he actually set the the music to that original person's pulse mm-hmm. was like, do you want to know what the BPM of the piece was? Or like, yeah, sure. Wow, this is a double blind study, like without even trying, you mm-hmm. know? And he's like, yeah, yeah, 128 BPM. Wow. So. That's quite interesting. And we ask people, how do you feel? And they're like, yeah, great. Okay, cool. This is the idea of group empathy then. Basically, yeah. And then you, you mentioned circadian rhythm. So in addition to, say, like maybe, you know, using our brainstorming tool in a, you know, like a conceptualization uh, task or activity, what might be quite interesting is to actually find out what your rhythm of flow is throughout the day. Mm-hmm. If you were willing to wear, you know, a, a brain sensing wearable for a few days, we could tell you, you know, whether you're more likely to get into flow at 4 p.m. every day, for example. Well, I know I'd like to wear that. Right. So, so for example, um, your ability to get into flow does vary throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And it also varies depending on how much sleep you've had and how stressed you are in general. So you so. do need to have multiple engagements, what do you see, wearing it multiple days to sort of see how if you slept seven hours, great seven hours, or you didn't, and maybe you have other activities and stresses and other things that impact. Yeah, so so maybe at the beginning you'll you'll not see any pattern. But then, you know, say you, you realize that you have to have a more... Um, healthy sleep pattern and you try and not be so stressed or whatever it is you eat regularly and all that sort of stuff and then you try again you might actually start seeing more of a pattern um and that why it's actually related to multiple things in the body one is um it seems that there's an inverse relationship between something called cortisol or arousal states, as they call it, and flow. So cortisol is not a bad thing, right? It mm-hmm. is what wakes you up in the morning and it, like a shot and a burst of it in the morning. But too much of it basically is what then causes stress. Mm-hmm. So literally, the more cortisol you have, you might get more flow, and then suddenly it'll start going down again. So it basically looks like an upside-down V, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so imagine if you have a constant low-level form of stress – that's you're not going to reach your full flow 
for mm-hmm. example, right? That's just one example. Mm-hmm. However, say you're trained in flow. Some other research has started to show that, say, you were put into more stress, you'll be more able to deal with it, mm-hmm. you know, be right. more resilient. But probably right. you need to have kind of had that experience of being in flow in the first place, mm-hmm. you know? But it's starting to suggest that. Mm-hmm. So... Cortisol is also related to circadian rhythm, Mm. right? So you have different levels of it throughout the day. Hence, Mm -hmm. you would have different times of the day that you're probably more likely to get into flow. So, you know, if it's at 4 p.m., you shouldn't be doing your emails then. You should be trying to do your deep work and your deep thinking, you know. Mm -hmm. For you, you mentioned 5.30 in the morning. That's cool. Great. No distractions. That's when you're going to do your writing, Mm -hmm. right? So that's some form of self-awareness and Mm -hmm. self-quantification. that it might take people years to find out on their own, right? I mean, experimenting and blah, blah, blah. But if you have some data, the idea is to help you more. And that's what your neurocreators trying to uncover as well. That's one of the other sort of use cases that we're thinking about. So so we've got these two components to our eventual flow platform, essentially. They work on their own. They work together. You know, that's the idea. So tell us when people should start contacting you and try to (laughs) plug in your software into their systems Um, and into their companies. Yeah, actually, we're already um, we're already uh, ready (laughs) with the brainstorming tool. So, um, you know, it's available as a cloud enabled piece of software. All you would need to do is download it and we'll get where do you get it? From uh, from me. <laughs> How do I get me? Uh, so I have a website, neurocreate.co.uk. Um, there's a, a slash creative where you can actually go and see how this brainstorming tool works. Um, you can email me if you like after that. And that's shama at neurocreate.co.uk or it's rahman.shama at gmail.com. Harder to actually spell, but all right. I'll put the show notes. Yeah, exactly. So that's, you would just contact me directly. And we have different um, uh, sort of offerings for enterprise level. We've got, you know, individual seats per month. We've also got site licenses. Um, It would be super useful for anybody doing strategy, anybody uh, creating new content. um, And that could be like... um, games or you know a, a new advert or a new design for a new product um, it could be I don't know if you're a scriptwriter or a songwriter um, it could also be anybody trying to problem solve um, you know a hairy innovation um, topic or issue so you know it's applicable within corporates and business as much as it's applicable with creative industries so if you want to boost your creativity go visit these sites I'll put them in the show notes Shama, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, Great energy and uh, look forward to staying in touch. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
My name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. 
I'll also be sharing Business Bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.